during the early church, uh, our spiritual ancestors, um, Rome, the empire that they lived in, began to enforce a loyalty oath to the emperor, basically affirming the emperor as a deity, as a god. So people were, were forced or required to recite the phrase, uh, Kaiser Curios, meaning Caesar is Lord. And in response, the early Christians, uh, they responded by doing civil obedience in every way they could. They paid taxes. They honored the, the emperor, those that governed them as much as they could. They were basically model citizens. Except they could not say that phrase, Kaiser Curios, that, G- that Caesar is Lord, because that wasn't true. They believed that Jesus is Lord. So in fact, the earliest uh, confession of the church, our church was Kyrios Jesus. Jesus is Lord. We see that actually in Romans 10.9. If you read Romans 10.9, Paul writes, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Paul Washer, he's a, a, a preacher, he gives a great illustration of what this looked like in the first, late first, second century. Imagine you were you were a construction worker back in that time. You just had a, a, a grueling morning of work, building whatever, and you're with your coworkers in a field relaxing for lunch. You feel the breeze going over you. You're in this nice meadow. And then you hear a drum beat in the distance. You keep on hearing it. It gets louder and louder. And as you look, you see a group of soldiers coming, Roman soldiers coming. And they get closer and closer. The, the drums get louder and louder. And finally, they get close enough. You see what they're carrying. They're carrying an altar. And then you start getting very nervous because you know what's going to happen. The soldiers line everyone up in a row in front of the altar. And in the midst of your workers, the co-workers, there are some Christians. You're a Christian and there are some others, but most are, are, are non-Christians. And so the first co-worker comes up to the altar. He grabs a pinch of incense and throws it to the altar and says, Kaiser Kyrios. The next goes up, does the same thing. Grabs incense, throws it at the altar, says Kaiser Kyrios. And you're getting more nervous and more nervous. And then the first of your co-workers, who's a Christian, goes up. The incense is motioned towards him. And instead he says, Jesus Kyrios, and they strike him down dead right there. And then it continues. And the next person goes, and you're getting very nervous. You're thinking about your wife, your spouse, your kids, your parents. How am I going to provide for them? And the people are keeping going up, keeping going up. And then your turn comes up. This was not uncommon in the first and second century church. And it's not uncommon for our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world today. This morning in our passage, the question is raised, who is Jesus? And we'll see the crowd answer, see what they think, and then we'll see the, the answer, that Jesus is Christ, he is Lord, he is King. And then we'll see that this is very good, this is very good for us today. Those of us who are tired, those of us who are had a long week, those of us who are downtrodden, this is very good that Jesus is Lord. So the question this morning that Jesus uh, posits towards the, the apostles and to you today is, who do you say that Jesus is? So if you have not yet, open up to Luke chapter 9. Let me remind us of the context here. So Jesus has been going from town to town, from village to village, 
proclaiming the kingdom of God and healing people. And this has caused quite a stir in the towns. If you recall, he has raised some people from the dead. He has cast out demons from very high profile people. He has been politely driven out of towns and he has been violently driven out of towns with people with the intent to murder him. He has been forgiving sinners. He has been speaking words of judgment on religious leaders. He has been speaking with authority. He's been proclaiming that a new time has come. And in our last passage, we saw last week, that then he extends this mission to the apostles, gives them power, has them go out, and now they're spreading even further. And it keeps on having a massive impact on Israel. So just so you know, this wasn't just a small thing going on in Israel. This was having a massive impact. Especially with Israel was at the crossroads of a lot of ways to get to other parts of the world was through Israel. And so there was having a massive impact, especially locally here in Israel. Then we get to verse 7. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening, and he was perplexed, because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old has risen. Herod said, John I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. So you have Herod, the, the ruler of this area, he's hearing these things about this man that's doing wonderful things, his, his, his followers doing wonderful things as well, talking much about the kingdom of God, and he's perplexed. And no doubt he inquired about this, and so he's asking people, and he keeps on hearing these answers. Oh, it's John the Baptist, raised from the dead. Oh, it's Elijah, he has come. Oh, it's one of the other prophets. They've, ra- they've been raised from the, de- the head, from the dead. And as we see here, Herod has already beheaded John. That's already happened. Yet he couldn't stop questioning, is this John the Baptist? A good reason for this is that the same message John had, Jesus is proclaiming, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. We see that they're, they're um, asking Elijah, or thinking of Elijah, is this Elijah? And we see this in Malachi 4.5, that they were awaiting Elijah. In Malachi 4, it says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great an awesome day of the Lord comes. And we see back in Luke chapter 1, the angel Gabriel connects this to John the Baptist. And then later, in Matthew chapter 11, Jesus himself explains that John the Baptist was this Elijah figure. And and Herod seemingly dismisses uh, that this could be John. And look how he dismisses It's almost as if he's saying, Hey, I beheaded John, now what? I killed him, and this isn't getting rid of this. Now who is this? And Luke includes this. I thought this was interesting. He includes that Herod sought to see Jesus. And in fact, if you turn, you don't have to, to Luke 23 at the end, when Jesus is being tried before Pilate, Jesus is sent to Herod, the same guy, the guy that, and it says in Luke, Herod's been looking forward to this. He's been seeking him. And you would hope that, hey, maybe it's here. He's looking to, to hear and maybe believe. Not at all. It's clear from this that he was just looking for a sign. He was a sign seeker. He was looking for a miracle. Just like in John with the crowds, John describes the crowds as miracle seekers. They were coming just because they liked the bread. They could get the bread. And then we see this with Herod as well. But the question remains, who is this? Who is this? It's the same question to us. Who is Jesus? And the biggest question we have. Now jump to verse 18. 
in verse 18, we see a, a passage that clearly ties to what, uh, what happened in the verses 7 through 9. We see here verse 18, Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, Who do the crowd say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say Elijah. And others, that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, The Christ of God. So Jesus first asked the disciples, Who do the crowds say I am? And I thought this was incredibly interesting. Like, who? why does it matter what the crowds are saying? But it seems... Uh, that Jesus is purposely leading the disciples to see the distinction between, hey, this is what the majority think, but what is the truth? What is, what do you think, what do you say? What do you see about me? And so the disciples answer. What have the crowds been thinking? Well, same thing that he, that Herod heard. Possibly John the Baptist raised. Possibly Elijah. Possibly another prophet. And I was thinking when I was reading this, does this not blow your mind? These people have literally been following Jesus from village to village to village, listening to him, and they still have this this misconception about who Jesus is. And then Jesus brings it home to the apostles and to us this morning. Yup, I hear what others think, but what do you think? Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And Peter who's kind of the spokesperson of the group, he answers for the group. He says, you are the Christ of God. So what does this mean? You are the Christ of God. Christ is the the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew Messiah. And both of them mean the anointed one. And we may hear that be like, well, what, what does that even mean? And it was very significant in Israel's history because Israel, they they put a king into office by anointing them. Like we swear in the president and inaugurate the president. Israel, in their history, they anointed them. We see this with Saul, with David. They were anointed as kings. And so this Christ, the anointed one, is a king. He is the sovereign. And it really starts, if you remember, back in Second uh, Samuel chapter 7, God is given, make it a covenant with King David. And from that point on, really from that point on forward, we see that God foretells through his prophets that there was to be a, a king coming. There's one who is coming who is going to rule over all forever. His kingdom will be no end, and he's going to make things right. There's one coming. We see in Jeremiah 33, one of the prophets, he says that, yep, there's one that's coming from the, the line of David who will be on his throne forever. And then in Isaiah 9, 6 through 7, if you remember uh, last week when we read this, this passage, it Isaiah prophesies, tells of this majestic splendor of this king and his kingdom. Zechariah 9 speaks of this king humbly coming, and he's coming with salvation. Let me read just two verses from there. Zechariah 9, 9 and 10, he says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall from sea, shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. This king is coming. He's bringing salvation. The culmination of all the hope in the promise of the Old Testament is in this coming Christ. This King, this Lord that's coming. And then you have Peter declaring, You are Him, Jesus. You are that man. 
You are the anointed one. You are the promised leader that's bringing deliverance, that's bringing fulfillment to all of these, to all those who ally with you through repentance and faith. And this shouldn't be too much of a surprise uh, for Luke's readers, for Theophilus, for us. If we remember, uh, back when Gabriel, the angel, came to young Mary and said, you're going to have a kid. The angel says this, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, and he will be great and be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom there will be no end. So who do you say that I am? You are the Christ. You are the King. You are Lord. Uh, on the day of Pentecost, another time when Peter speaks, on the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came upon the, the believers gathered together, Peter preached a famous sermon in Acts chapter 2, a fantastic sermon. He ends it with this. This is Acts 2, verse 36. Another time Peter spoke, he said, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. We can be certain that Jesus is both Christ and Lord. And within the context, when, when Peter says God has made him both Christ and Lord, he's saying by, he confirmed Jesus as both Christ and Lord by his resurrection. Within the context, that's what Peter's saying there. But for certain, we can know that Jesus Christ is Christ, the King, the Messiah, and he is Lord. And that was the first confession of our church. Jesus is Lord, and many people died for it. And many people are dying today for that same thing. And like I mentioned, Jesus sets this in contrast to what everyone else thought. Who do you say the, who do the crowd say that I am? Kind of like, hey, what does everyone say? Okay, but what do you say? And you can see they're different. There's some correlation, but they're completely different between, well, you're just Elijah, you're just another prophet. No, you are the Christ. In the same way, uh, Jesus is not the secularized Jesus that the culture accepts. A Jesus that uh, has a neutered Christianity that's just all fuzzy-wuzzy, if I can use that word, that's just nice. But Jesus stands in contrast to that. Um, it never ceases to amaze me when uh, a political leader or a leader in our culture uh, kind of hijacks the name of Jesus to support whatever they want. Uh, we see that with different political policies. Uh, we see that quite often with uh, the LGBTQ movement where say, hey, Jesus would be for this because he's all about love or however they define it. We see this, this hijack of who Jesus is. But the world does not know who Jesus is. That's why they need us to go tell them this is who Jesus is. He is the king. He is the Lord. The world was wrong. The state Herod was wrong. The crowd was wrong. Jesus is Lord. We see with this, Jesus being Lord, that there is a myth that you can be neutral about this. The myth of neutrality, that we can be neutral about Jesus being Lord. Uh, both in like a, an institution way, uh, the government kind of puts forward, I, I just want to be practical, kind of put forward that um, atheism is neutral. Or secularism is neutral, as if uh, we need our, our schools to be uh, secular, we need other institutions being secular, as if 
then that's, that's neutral. But that's not true. That's incredibly hostile to Jesus Christ as we have seen in different policies put forward. But the same thing is for us. It is a myth to say that you and I could be neutral about Jesus as Lord. It is a myth that someone can just not really like Jesus and not follow him, and, and that's okay. No, the Bible says that those not following him are enemies of God. They hate God, just like us Christians hated God before. It's a, it's a myth with Jesus as Lord that we can have a foot in both camps. That we can kind of say on Sunday mornings that Jesus is Lord, but then in everywhere else, every area of our life, uh, we're just, ah, no. It's, uh, it's more in line with what our, the culture is, the norm is, rather than Christ. It's a myth that we can say that Jesus is Christ, but we hold back certain areas of our life. That he's not Lord. Ah, our, our, uh, our finest will hold that back. Ah, we, we will take care of this. Or our marriage, or how we parent. Ah, it's not that big of a deal. Jesus is Lord, but not of this area. James says, uh, James says in his letter, chapter 4, he says, You adulterous people. He's speaking to Christians. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. There's no neutrality. Either Jesus is Lord or he's not. And so the question that Jesus puts, what do you say? If someone looked at your life, looked at my life, looked how we made decisions, how we, where we spent our money on, where we spent our, our time on, where our priorities are, would our life show that we believe that Jesus is Lord, or would it not? Because to say that Jesus is Lord is to say Caesar is not, is to say that uh, a good career is not Lord, is to say that money is not Lord, a good education, that is not Lord. Your loyalty is to Jesus uh, alone, that he is the priority and not these other things. So Jesus Christ is Lord, he alone is Lord. Now, moving to the second section here. You probably realize we skipped a massive part between these two passages. These two that we looked at, both concerning about who Jesus is, that he is Lord, it sandwiches a miracle. Uh, The only miracle outside of the resurrection that's reported on or recorded in all four of the Gospels is the feeding of the 5,000. And I think it's a a fantastic uh, way that Luke did this. That in these two passages about Jesus is Lord, he is Christ, in the between of it, there's a miracle about Jesus who cares, who provides. And so this morning, uh, for us, we carry different things into here this morning. Different arguments, different issues at home, different issues at work, whatever. Different fears, different anxieties. We can know that it is good that Jesus is Lord because he is good. It is very good that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so let's look at that. Verse 10. So we're jumping back at this miracle. Verse 10. Luke records, On their return, the apostles told them all that they had done. And he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. And so right here, we're jumping back a little bit. The apostles returned from this mission that, that Jesus just sent them out. And they come. And Jesus listens. It's like they report back. And I get a picture of like, almost like soldiers reporting back. But there's, uh, also it seems like a picture of like a, 
Like kids, excited kids coming back, telling dad, look at what just happened. You can see the apostles like, Jesus, you won't believe this. I casted out this demon in your name over here. You won't believe this over here. And Jesus is like, yep, that's awesome. He listened to them. And then it says he withdrew. They withdrew to Bethsaida, uh, most likely to rest, as we see him withdrawing other times to rest. They just have been traveling from town after town. They had just been proclaiming and doing a lot of work. They've worked hard, and now Jesus takes them and withdraws to rest. And amen, that God knows when we need rest. He is our great high priest, and he knows. And they withdraw to Bethsaida. And Bethsaida might be familiar. It's, uh, it's the north of the Sea of Galilee. Um, important is that it's the hometown of both Peter, Andrew, and Philip. So they have connections there. Picks up in verse 11. So they try to withdraw to rest. Verse 11, when the crowds learned it, they followed him. And he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had, been, had, who had need of healing. So you have Jesus, the Lord, the Christ. The apostles come. He hears them. He sees that they're tired and he goes to withdraw. And then they get interrupted by crowds coming. And notice how Jesus responds. He doesn't say, nope, enough of you. We're, we're, we're done with that. It says he welcomes them. Those that need a healing, he cures them. And he proclaims the truth of the kingdom of God. And this goes on for a while. It comes to verse 12. Now the day began to wear away. And the twelve came and said to him, Jesus, send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions for we are here in a distant place. And I could not but see myself in this verse. The twelve came to Jesus and said, send the crowds away because there's no lodging. We don't have any food, Jesus. Send them away. It's interesting because they have just seen Jesus' power and authority over creation, over demons, over disease, over even death. They themselves have been empowered by Christ and have done incredible things, literally just returning from this. And now they're asking Jesus, like, I'm not sure what we're going to do about the situation. Send them out. And like I said, I can see myself. How often do we experience the goodness of Christ? We experience God holding us through these hardships and these situations where it seems uh, uh, hopeless, but yet God has saw us through it. That he is Lord even over this situation, and he has carried us through it. And then another hardship comes up, and it's like we're starting from ground zero. Like, oh my goodness, what am I going to do? Uh, this, There's no hope. That's how, and I'll be honest, that's how I am. Like, it's another hardship. You're like, oh my goodness, we're, we're done. There's no hope. But then we see Jesus is Lord, that we completely forget that. We forget that Jesus is good. And it seems like the disciples also have that, where they just got done seeing all of these incredible things that Jesus has done. And then this hard... Pre- situation comes up hey we don't have any food jesus send them away we can't handle this and then jesus says verse 13 but he said to them you give something to eat they said we have they said we have no more than five loaves and two fish unless we are to go and buy food for all these people which would be a lot of money for there were about five thousand men and he said to his disciples had them sit in groups about 50 each, and they did so and had them all sit down. And so Jesus directs them, you feed them. 
we don't have time, but this is a clear echo of the prophet Elisha in 2 Kings uh, chapter um, 4, verses 42 to 44. If you have time, look at that. It's a clear echo of this. And in that passage with Elisha, we see it's the Lord that provides. Just like in Israel, in the wilderness, it's the Lord that provides the manna. And so we see here, Jesus Christ, He's the Lord that provides. And He commands the disciples, you feed them. And instantly, they object. Whoa, 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 Jesus. We have like no food. We have nothing. Unless we go and buy a bunch of food, which we don't even have the money to do. But Jesus is going to provide through them. I, I thought of, I instantly thought of Moses when, at the burning bush when God is saying, I'm going to send you all, I'm going to send you all. And Moses is unceasingly saying, but God, I can't speak. But God, they're going to reject me. But God, this. But God, that. And in that passage, it's like God, a rough paraphrase, enough. I'm going with you. In the same way we see with the, the apostles, I'm going to work through you. Put your confidence in God and not yourself. And this wasn't any no small feat. So Luke records 5,000 men. And so we can uh, estimate with the, the, the woman and the children involved at least or close to, if not more, 20,000 people. And so when we talk about crowds following Jesus, this is massive crowds. Massive crowds that's following him. And so... It makes sense. It's simply like, what are we going to do? And it says, verse 16, Jesus begins, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied, and what was left over was picked up, 12 baskets of broken pieces. So before Jesus gives the food, he looks up to heaven and he blesses the food. He we see Jesus' dependence on the Father. He gives gratitude, as we've been doing uh, intentionally this week, thanksgiving, as, as Keith prayed, giving thanks. We see that God is the source of provision. And then Jesus gives out the, the fish and the bread to the disciples to give out. Jesus worked through them to provide. And as a result, they all ate and were satisfied. There was not that they all got a little crumb. That was quite the miracle. We all got a little speck of fish. No, they were all satisfied. All 20,000 plus were satisfied, and there was even some left. So this morning, from this passage, we see that Jesus is the Christ. He is king. He is absolute Lord. He is the sovereign. And this is very good news for both of us. From this account... We see Jesus' compassion and his care for you and for me. He listened to the apostles. He withdrew with them to rest because he knew they needed rest. He welcomed the crowds. He healed those who needed healing. Who needed healing. Those of us who need healing, he knows. And he taught them. And then he fed the whole crowd. Jesus, our caring, great high priest. It is good that Jesus is the Christ. It is good that he's Lord because he is good. And I use that word good in the superlative sense, meaning he's the ultimate good. He cares and he provides. He works through us and he empowers us for our duties and our responsibilities. And he has come to rescue. 
the lost. And it's good that He's Lord because that means He's able to care for us. He's able to provide. He's able to, to finally propitiate the Father's uh, wrath, to appease the Father's wrath against your sin. He is able to say that your sins are completely forgiven. Because He's Lord, He's able to do that just like He did to the paralytic man. He's able to empower you to serve Him, to serve others, even when you're exhausted, when you've had a long week, and you feel like there's nothing left. He's able to empower you, just like He did for the apostles. He's able to calm the storms and heal the sick. He's able to, to, to overcome the spiritual attacks that you have. He's able to give you hope in the darkest time of your life, just like He gave hope to the widow who was walking out of the town with her only son dead. But Jesus came and he gave amazing hope. He's able to provide for you. Even though it seems like there's no way, he'll, he, he is able to provide for you because he is Lord, just like he fed this whole massive group. He is able to strengthen your soul when it seems like it's, it, it's done. He's able to, to give you energy and to give you vision and a reason to continue. He's able to change hearts, to save those, those that we've been praying for for years who have not come to Christ, He's able to change hearts because He is Lord. You can trust Him. I quoted from the song before. I'm going to quote it again because I absolutely love it. It it brings me such comfort and strength. So let me share this with you. The song goes like this. The soul that is trusting in Jesus as Lord will press on enduring the darkest of storm. And though even hell should endeavor to shake, he'll never, no never, no never forsake. Fear not, he is with us. Oh, be not dismayed, for he is our God, our sustainer and strength. He'll be our defender and cause us to stand upheld by his merciful almighty hand. In that first line, the soul that is trusting in Jesus as Lord will press on enduring the darkest of storm. It is good that Jesus is Lord. And so the question, who do you say Jesus is? Who do you say Jesus is? And everyone must give an answer. It's personal. It's not what your parents think. It's not what the the elders, the leaders of the church think. It's who do you say Jesus is? And this question isn't determining who Jesus is. Rather, it determines how you relate to him. Jesus is Lord. He is the Sovereign Almighty. He is the Christ. He is King. And He is good. He brought Himself low for your sake. He took on the sin of the lost for His sake. He calls us friend, Christian. He calls us child. And God says through Christ we can draw near to Him with confidence, with boldness. Um, Closing here. Uh, the, the the situation I described in, in the before, uh, what the, the first century, second century Christians faced with the Roman soldiers, that was not hypothetical. In the second century, in the city of Smyrna, which may sound familiar, uh, there was a bishop, a Christian leader named Polycarp. At 86 years old, He was arrested by the Roman authorities and ordered to confess that Caesar is Lord. If not, he'll be killed. And Polycarp, he refused. He refused to say that. 
He was murdered, and as a result, he inspired many. And it's recorded his last words. As they said, confess Caesar's Lord and you'll go free. This is how he responded. He said this. Eighty and six years have I served him, and he never once wronged me. How then shall I blaspheme my king who have saved me? Jesus is Lord, and he is good, and he'll never wrong you. He is our Savior, and he is taking your burden, and he'll take the burden that you're carrying right now. Jesus is Lord, and that is very good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Pray with me. Father, thank you, Lord, that you are Lord God. You're Lord over our insecurities. Lord, you're over the situations that we're in this morning. You're Lord over seemingly hopeless times, God. And God, you are good. You are good. And Father, we affirm that, we confess it, that you are Lord. And it is so good that you are Lord because you are good. You do not forsake us. Lord, give us strength as we go in this week. Give us strength in our marriages. Give us strength at school. Give us strength in our our workplaces, God. That we can live knowing that Jesus is Lord and He is our Savior. All our sin is taken away. He is able to completely appease your wrath and our sin. And we walk free. Free in Christ. Lord, we, we thank you and we pray this. In Jesus' name, amen.